Conversations on Changing the World, a podcast devoted to women's issues and creating change from a distinctly Midwest perspective. I'm Martha Kovach, sociologist, producer, and your host. I'm here today with my co-host, Doug Jones. The issues surrounding gender, sexuality, racial identity, and what it means to be an American are complex and varied. For young women of color in the U.S., The challenge of developing a strong sense of self in a culture that doesn't always recognize their worth can be enormous. Our conversation today is with a woman who has combined political activism with a very unusual career choice that allowed her to develop a self-identity as a strong immigrant woman. Bella Sin is a force to be reckoned with. She's here today to talk with Doug and me about the ways that fighting for justice for others helped her to embrace her body, sexuality, ultimately her Mexican heritage, in ways she never anticipated. We caught up with Bella at the Gypsy Bean Coffee Shop on Cleveland's west side. So, Bella, welcome, and thank you for allowing us to interview you for our show. Oh, thank you for having me. We're excited to talk to you today. We wanted to talk to you for uh, your activism and particularly for the recent work in terms of immigration and in terms of some of the ICE raids that have happened recently in Ohio. But we realized after talking with you and meeting you that you are in some ways an atypical activist. <laughs> I think I called you once the accidental activist, and yes. you said, no, there was, it, there was no accident about it. No, it wasn't. And so before we go into the activism, uh, you have a rather unusual career. You're a burlesque queen. Yes. Now, I first learned about burlesque when I was very young because I had family who had been vaudeville, mm-hmm. and of course, I heard about burlesque. They described it to me. But a lot of people don't know what it is. Indeed. And don't understand don't. what it is. So could we talk about this? You know, for those unfamiliar with burlesque, could you explain to us what burlesque is and what it's not? I mean, for example, is burlesque the same as stripping? Do um, you use a pole and <laughs> crawl around on the floor and have dollars put in your costume? Sometimes. Um. <laughs> <laughs> if you're lucky. So, yeah. um, Burlesque is the art of the bump and grind and the tease, and it, there's an inherent sexuality and sensuality in it. And when people try to separate modern strip clubs, stripping and burlesque, it's not really that different. We're in the same tree. They actually, we were the origination mm-hmm. of what is um, club workers or um, sex workers, as they would be. The only difference between them and us is the atmosphere, and that they make more money than us. They can pay huh. their rent. <laughs> Um, they do make yeah, more money. They do. I'm surprised um, by that. Pole is actually um, the very difficult, like, I call it an Olympic sport because anybody that's holding on to a pole going around in circles very fast with their foot and, like, their finger 
just like science of that does not equate to me. So a lot of people don't people don't understand that the artistry of the body is so different. So when they they were like, oh, but it's you know it's it's classy stripping and like everything's really classy stripping is just the location of it. There is pole less performers. Um, there is burlesque performers. There's people that are just variety performers. There's a little bit of everything in the area. There's different types of burlesque. There's old school burlesque, which is the old bump and grind, all the old 1940s and 50s uh-huh. genre where vaudeville inserted and like put in um, strippers to go ahead and keep the shows going. Right. And air conditioning apparently didn't work, but I love air conditioning. Uh, <laughs> air conditioned shows are amazing, especially when you're in like wearing more than half the audience that you have to take off later. <laughs> it's a really bad idea to wear um, really hot costumes in the summer. Uh, yeah. Um, but no, burlesque is part of the American history and actually world history because it, depending who you ask, it goes as far as Greco-Roman times or it goes as as much as um, Lydia Thompson and the British Blondes from the um, United Kingdom from Europe when they came around. The Minsky brothers turned it into like an all-American style mm-hmm. show. And then mm-hmm. this was a whole industry that actually had um, unions. It was unionized and they had stagehands and they had a, a lot of people working, predominantly women. And a lot of drag queens, believe it or not, drag queens, drag kings, and it had this like trotting around variety act going around, and it made millions and millions of dollars out of charging ten cents at the door. So it's when we talk about burlesque, modern burlesque, it's a variety show. With um, right, at least our show is diversified with different backgrounds, different races, different sexualities, genders, is a very much, we think it's a genderless performance art because we're telling a story with our bodies. And sometimes there's spoken art poetry, sometimes there's not. Um, but if you give April show a chance, you will not be disappointed. And I've, and I've read about burlesque and heard about it that included comedians and mm-hmm. jugglers and mm-hmm. dancers and mm-hmm. singers. Yep. Do your shows include a variety of acts like that? Yep. Okay. <laughs> Our favorite so far is the drag queen that likes to do a backflip off the stage onto the splits. Oh, boy. So. Yikes. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. Well, I've also read that 19th century burlesque, as it came from Great Britain, mm-hmm also constituted a number of women who were activists either as in, in suffrage or in um, abolition, yes. and that there was a political component mm-hmm. to burlesque as it well. Was, it was very political. It was then and still is when burlesque started to be known as making a mockery of Shakespearean plays and so forth, mm-hmm. they were seen by, it's called the poor man's show because poor people could go it and actually king and queen would go, go see it. But in the time that it started in the 40s and the 50s, in 30s, the Great Depression left a lot of people without means and they had to turn into means because then you saw the political climate at that point where... Ironically, in the 1930s, the Great Deportation of Mexicans started. Uh, right. <laughs> point that one out. But a lot of people needed to feed their families. So all these women that couldn't go work and God knows what decided to be like, hey, you know what? I could go take off my clothes for a couple bucks. And they actually fed their families. They toured with their families, their children. Uh, Sally Rand's son slept in her fan box, which is <laughs> like, you know, you think of it, Alan Alba. 
his dad was yeah. in Burlesque show. So when you think about back in the day, like there was a lot of political ideology behind it and a lot of political acts in it. The the current commentary about the comedians was about what was happening. And then as that went up to, I think ironically, is politics what killed it in the rise of the porn industry and stuff like that and the television because the Detroit riots and were starting mm -hmm. to get really predominant and then the civil rights movement was very out there and then the feminist movement which can be an issue here and there because <laughs> sure. some of it is inclusive and some of it is not is um started you know being like oh you're being taken advantage of you know you're being put like you you don't have to take off your clothes and demean yourself i was like well i'm making really good money right now so <laughs> are you gonna give me those 300 dollars i make a week for my family you don't think so so and also i was like i think a, a place where burlesque at that time we just created these stars mm -hmm. and created this this background that was just unheard of anywhere in the in the country and certainly high schools continue to do productions of Gypsy, who's perhaps the most famous burlesque queen of that era that we oh, have today. Gypsy. <laughs> uh, she's, she would have been a hundred and something at this point. Uh, her centennial was not that long ago. People know Gypsy because of she really wanted to be a legitimate actress. But like we foc we try to focus on there's also Tempest Storm, there's Blaze yes. Star, there's she used to make her own gems for her costumes, which I think it's interesting. Then there's, you know, like we have dancers of color like Lottie the Body Graves. She did a lot for the Detro for Detroit in general. She was a born and bred Detroiter and she also helped a lot of the Motown movement and really was pushing Detroit for how beautiful it was and how amazing it was since it was one of the largest industries we had back in the day was Detroit. Um, and then we have Miss Tony Elling. So she was trying to change literally the world by being a dancer of color. So we have we have so many dancers, but like I like how people are the introductory of the Gypsy. It was it's funny to me that like plays like American Idiot make a big wo like whoop about it, but people still go see Gypsy. And I was like, uh, <laughs> sure, guys. <laughs> And in Gypsy, her <laughs> performing came out of essentially a variety show. Right. Yeah, Vago. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. right. Wasn't there, particularly in 19th century burlesque, a component that also represented a political challenge in terms of a Victorian notion of sexuality and women's sexuality and women's bodies? What is interesting is that that has been existent since the start of time with women mm -hmm. because I believe that when you, we talk about drag history men were drag queens um, back in the Greek times because women were not allowed on stage right. which I think mm -hmm. is humorous because people are like oh men in makeup I was like listen this is normal uh, I don't know where you've been but <laughs> but when it comes to women's sexuality the repression of that sexuality has been since the start of time but then you see you know like the way that they're overly sexualized around history, especially if they're exoticized and fetishized. So it's interesting how women were being told how to use the bodies, and as soon as we're like, well, I want to use it this way, and this is what I'm going to do, they're like, wait a minute. Lydia Thompson didn't mm -hmm. like a review of her show and from a Chicago writer, and she literally whooped them. 
<laughs> she had a whip or something she hit him and I was like go girl so it's as, as soon as women become their own their own person and their own sexual identity and they know who they are I, I really think that when a woman knows who they are there's no stopping them which is wonderful and at the same time really scary <laughs> and also depressing because then you realize that there's a lot of them that you know might not know who they are and they don't know how to empower themselves because some women are empowered by being hum like humbled in their dress and you know they like to be covered up and that's them and that's understandable and that's supportive you know like you shouldn't be like oh you should take a lot a little less and it's like no the way she's dressed is fine or if they want to go ahead and wear close to nothing like you know two pasties and a g-string <laughs> they shouldn't right. be you know asked to be dressed up so it just I think it's generational. Is there still the glamour aspect to burlesque in oh, yes. the neo-burlesque movement <laughs> yes. that there was previously? We, we spend a lot of money on rhinestones. Uh, <laughs> feather fans. I, I know uh, that heels. you and I talked about glitter. Uh, <laughs> and you live like, for we glitter. Just, we just live a, a different life than anybody else, I think, when it comes to the perceived idea of glamour. But I think that's half the fun when you come to a burlesque show. You expect to see that style of, of entertainment. You expect to see the rhinestones. You expect to see sparkly. You expect to see a gown. You expect to see feathers, feather fans. You expect to see, like, you know, effort in not just a girl with okay. a Fredericks of Hollywood you know, underwear and top, just taking off clothes that she got a goodwill. I like to, like, and that's all fine with them, but my brand of burlesque is put a little effort for it. Like, you know, like, I want people to say this was worth $25 to come see. Sure. And there's a certain language of vocabulary that burlesque carries through, even through history, that echoes what it began as. And I think it's really important to teach that vocabulary. If you have been a dancer for years, that's not the same thing. Like, you still should take lessons and history and learn what that vocabulary is. And burlesque is not for everybody. So many can be spectators and fans, and other people can be entertainers. But in the end of the day, you want to go be entertained for two hours, see really sparkly clothes, really shiny costumes, really f fabulous performances that we spent months <laughs> constructing and, you know, all this time putting together and probably cried a little bit at 3 o'clock in the morning while we were putting another 1,000 rhinestones on our costumes, but <laughs> <laughs> maybe, like, bled a little on, on some of that stuff. But essentially, like, we craft all this for a five-minute performance for a 90-minute show, and that's the way that we create art. So I think that... The it's not a presumed elegance. It's just that should already come with with the idea of it. There should be something more to to lead you to the story of how this ends. So it's like you know that there you're gonna see something, but it's all about how the story is gonna go. Where are we gonna take you? Where it's yeah. gonna begin? How is it gonna go? So I, I think that's half the fun. Like, not expecting, expecting the unexpected and not having expectations when you come into a burlesque. So. That's very intriguing. Do you see what you do? And presuming that, that we're talking about a continuum here, do you see what you do as more on a performance art end of a continuum or on a 
pure stripping that I think most people would equate more directly with sex work? We're not sex workers. There's a very difference. Again, this is about atmosphere. A sex worker goes to their job and they really don't want to be like hearing what that guy that they're having to dance on to pay their bills. Like this is their job. They don't want to hear their opinions. Sometimes it's a very chauvinistic opinion. Some of it's a very, you know, like insulting opinion. And it's (laughs) like, I've worked in strip clubs before as a house mom and I've seen what toll sometimes you have to take. You're there, you're strictly there for your body, and they don't want to, you're just a sex sexual object. They deserve a lot of respect for what they do. In burlesque, even though we're in the same tree, but in a different branch, we allow you to objectify us, but the objectification ends after five minutes on stage, and you can't touch us. Right. Even though you can't touch strippers either, people try. I don't have a problem calling myself a stripper, but I know that I'm not a sex worker. I used to be a sex worker, but it's it doesn't equate to the same thing that I think club workers have to endure versus what we have to do. We have a private, like we have a dressing room. We're getting dressed. We go upstairs. We do our, we get announced. We do our number. We like get claps and people take pictures of us. They seem as as acceptable and like you know deemable in society because we're performance art doing almost pretty much the same thing that that girl in the club's doing but it's just all in atmosphere and that's the thing i I don't i don't understand why people they're like oh strippers oh my god i'm like (laughs) i don't hear you saying oh strippers oh my god when you go to like the man of steel review (laughs) or like you know the chippendales you're like woo, it's men it's different no i think it's um you know just i i just don't understand why some people want to separate it when it's apples to oranges. In that conversation that Doug and I had had uh, in talk in preparing for uh, meeting you today, we talked about the notions of, or just the 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 images and the essence of sexuality that's being displayed. That in burlesque, the conceal is every bit as tantalizing, Mm -hmm. if not more, than the reveal. And that you play with that conceal and and reveal Mm -hmm. so that desire is all mixed up with both what you see on stage in front of you and what the observer's imagination brings to the performance. I think that's my favorite part is because you're like kind of equating a very like like it's like a thin veil but they can still not see through which is really interesting to me that people are like oh you know like boobs it's like <laughs> do we wait <laughs> let them wait and like i feel like we toy with the audience sometimes like you'll see like mm-hmm. we're trying to throw gloves over or we're trying to do like you know like catch their attention and pretend we're giving them something and it's like you're in other words like they're they're in the palm of your hand they're your toy for the evening and your job is to entertain them it's harder to entertain them when that that audience is full of your peers (laughs) (laughs) because if you mess up they'll see (laughs) the audience won't even know (laughs) that reminds me of the scene from gypsy the movie Mm -hmm. starring natalie wood where oh she uh, was fabulous and and the great production number of all of the women of the who, follies of the, the follies and their song you gotta have a gimmick mm-hmm. oh no that was a uh, miss mazappa 
I love her. Right, right, <laughs> right. So it's true, though. You do have to have a gimmick. You have to have a gig. Sometimes your gig is that you're funny. Sometimes your gig is that you're sexy. Sometimes your gig is that you're, you know, uber Mexican and just, you know, literally living a political act right out on stage and making people listen to, you know, Spanish music and being a visible immigrant and saying a couple bad words <laughs> in the end of the show. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's just a gimmick. Sometimes it's not even a guarantee. Sometimes people just like to see a really pretty burlesque performer fan dancing. Sometimes people want to see something really funny. So sure. that's, that's where you have a talented producer, in my mind, has a show that's like waves up and down. That has, you know, mm -hmm. that leaves you in an up and up. Because you'll be like, oh my god, that was so much fun. We have to come back. We were laughing. That was super sexy. That was super tantalizing. You know, that was super scary. And because there's been times where we have moved the audience to tears and laughing and tears and actually crying. So, like, of emotion. So it's nice that we have this in our shows. Because we can, you know, like, the gimmick is whatever number is, you know, or whatever theme the show is that day. So... Well, that's burlesque. Yep. <laughs> Bella, do you have a gimmick? <laughs> I have a few. You have a I think few. at this point I can't color my hair ever again other than red. That's <laughs> one of them. Um, the one time I wore a brown wig, people were like, who are you? I was like, legitimately, they were like, who are you? I was like, hugged my co-producer, and he's like, mm. And they gave me a face, and I was like, it's me. And they're like, whoa. I was like, okay, so never wearing a wig again. I don't know. I think that my shtick for right now, I guess you would call it a shtick. It's more like a personal process. Um, I figured I want to be visible as an immigrant to people because then a lot of people, because I'm white presenting, a lot of people might not think I'm Mexican, even though my friends like, we know you're Mexican. <laughs> I think it's the nose. It's the Aztec nose. Ever since what started happening with the presidency, I don't see my people as criminals. I don't see my people as, you know, rapists or robbers or God knows what, you know, we get Vermin, called on our Let's see what else is on the you list. Know, yeah. There's a long list. Um, and it's very well understood that, you know, me living right now and creating has been to represent Mexican people in my culture and my country some people might not know what an immigrant looks like and they might not know that an immigrant looks like me and or they look like you know my cousin which is you know just super brown and then there's me I'm like Selena color or I like to say Mazapan color it's what I'm doing right now which has caused me to rediscover my Mexicanness in my history in the history of my country in this country which like I didn't expect a lot of the um to be honest, resentment that I have to to the United States at this current moment because from the points of history of the way that they treated Mexico. And I was just like, yo, what did we ever do to you? I know that we like, that was the Alamo and you kind of were mad at us about that <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> Sorry about it. We brought you like, you know, tacos and quesadillas and tortillas and they're delicious. <laughs> but I think it's, it's just my thing right now is helping people see who we are and how proud we are and how we are to be celebrated. Hopefully changing somebody's mind when they see that their decision in the lead is affecting somebody right in front of them. And I don't think people, like, when you go to a Mexican restaurant, you'll think about it. When you go to, like, a Mexican restaurant, you'll think about it. When you meet an immigrant, you'll think about it. 
but I don't think you ever think about it when you're going to a burlesque show to be entertained. I don't think that hits you when, to, like, when you're seeing a beautiful person walking in and dancing to, like, you know, a mariachi song or dancing to Malagueña, you know, like with a, a super fancy gown doing you know, zapateado, like, I don't think that you even think about it. Because even in my introductions, I tell people, it's like, it's very important that you say that I'm a Mexican immigrant, and you tell them that I'm only doing music in Spanish till he's out of office, which I never, th I thought it was going to be easy, but I, then I started seeing my own assimilation in it, and how I was just doing English music all the time. But, you know, starting to accept me more through performance and stop being feeling, I was saying, sorry, I'm Mexican. Uh -huh. So, and then starting to understand that I didn't have to say that. It was just like, well, I'm Mexican. So, I will be 20 minutes late. <laughs> so, so, deal with it. Yeah, yeah deal with it. <clears throat> so, you know, like, even, that has this, I guess, gimmick or shtick or personal protest has shown me a lot of colors that I didn't think I was ready to see from my audience. So it was definitely interesting. <laughs> well, one of the things that strikes me about what you're saying is that your, I mean, we were talking about gimmicks and that your gimmick is about simply being true to who you are. Mm -hmm. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about how within dominant white culture in this country, the archetype female body particularly as it's presented in a sexual way, is a white body. And as you were talking of the earlier burlesque queens, predominantly white, but those who were of African or other non-white descent, mm -hmm. what an enormously brave move it was just to present your body yeah. In that, I mean, in that kind of arena, and to claim that body as also beautiful. You see Josephine Baker um, yeah. moving from St. Louis, predominantly, like, you know, anti-black city at that point in time, moving to France and becoming a huge superstar in yes. France. And you, you see, like, people, like... Um, Gina Bonbon and Marinka and um, Lola Fox, they, they're all Latinas in burlesque and like they were, you know, sharing culture at that point, but like I don't think in burlesque at that point people were thinking about sharing culture like we are now. Mm -hmm. We are more, there's more people of color reviews in places, there's more awareness of the, you know, diversification of shows, especially since a lot of us are aware that the ideal thought of beauty is not a short, chubby Mexican chick from <laughs> with red hair, apparently. <laughs> oh, I think so. But, like, I was like, I think, I think I'm pretty cute. Um, but a lot of people want that, you know, blonde or, like, you know, brownish, like, haired, skinny girl in sure. this, uh, with a tan. And a lot of people either just, like, born on even the standards of beauty in my country. It's like, you're not brown with long brown hair. You're, you know, skinny and a little a little tall. You're not a standard of beauty. And that's where I think I'm allowed to, on stage, put in what other, as a producer and as a performer, put different standards of beauty out there and start breaking that. Yeah. 
that archetype, that the mentality of, hey, you have to look a certain way. No, you don't. <laughs> you can be who you are and be super happy. We have performers of size. We have performers that are thin, short, tall. We have body positive. I has been from the start of my life having to deal with like, you know, oh, you need to eat a little more because you look too, too skinny or you need to stop eating because you look a little sick. <laughs> you know, it's like as a Mexican, predominant Mexican person, you're like, oh, which one is it? Um, especially right. since over there, I had to not look like my family because I was the lightest. And they're like, well, you know, if you lose weight and you dye your hair blonde, you'll blend right in when you're over there. And I'm just like, eh. I was a little goth girl, too. So okay. <laughs> I was just avoiding the sun in general. So it's just like, it hurts. I'm a vampire. I don't know. It's like I, so many reincarnations of who I am. I think this is the most comfortable I've ever been. Oh. Just being me. Yeah, you don't want to blend in. No. I think that's very obvious <laughs> with my red hair. I don't think I blend in anywhere. I don't think that I could ever blend in because I'm just really loud. Not just vocally, but just like I'm loud. I'm a loud person. And I'm wearing heels clacking. Something's clacking on me. But it's just, I, I just blending to the background is not an option. Well, and also blending in means you're afraid to be yourself and show it. Like blending in, it would be subdi- like it would be toning down who I am. Yeah. So, and that's like, it's just not... Yeah, why tone down? Yeah, who you like, are why, when like I don't have to apologize for who I am anymore. I don't have to, even though sometimes I feel like I should, but I don't want to anymore. Like I think that's also why I've broken a lot of, of doors and glass ceilings doing what I do because I've been running my company for close to 16 years. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, 15. Sorry, close to 15 years, and I've been performing for 16 years. So. I've been running this burlesque show and burlesque festival as a woman of color and an immigrant of, like, a woman of size in Cleveland since 2004. Like, there were so many times I just wanted to quit because it seemed so much easier when it was somebody else doing it. Like, they got the opportunity. But it's, like, all the things that I, that I had to work past to even make burlesque a thing in Cleveland, it was rough. And you did start as a child. I started taking class when I was 17. <laughs> Can we go back a little bit to yeah. the pre-burlesque Bella? <laughs> Wee baby Bella. Wee baby Bella. <laughs> Can you tell us some about your childhood, your emigrating experience? Yeah, that story. Um, so I lived in Juarez, Chihuahua, Mexico. It's right across the border from El Paso, Texas. And I was born there. Um, and I had a huge Mexican family. Um, I didn't wear shoes, so I was probably five. <laughs> we didn't have a pay robe. It was like a very... It was like a very... It was a very humble existence. So I never had new, new clothes. You were poor. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. So um, my father and mother uh, divorced when I was nine. They got back together for a brief period of time. They divorced again, but it was always my mom working two or three jobs, like hustling, selling jewelry, shoes. She was working as a pharmacist, and you know. So like we always had means once we were older, and I was going to school, and like 
cleaning and cooking and doing all the stuff that I needed to do. And I knew English. That's the thing. I was I had a knack for languages. So I listened to English music too. And so like that was that. But then um, I was 13, she remarried, and we moved to Denver, Colorado. So that was a rough moment. We go back and forth in the States when they had to work before she remarried. Um, my parents would go work Dallas, Houston, depends El Paso. But that's when it started, you know, the small comments of, oh, you're one of the good ones. It started. Ah. Yeah. And I didn't know that that was an insult. So I didn't know a lot of those things. So because you're young. You're a kid. And um, right. immigrating was a very lonely experience. It was a very traumatizing experience too in school because I came from like a mixed school with uniforms and like a lot of structure in like you know god forbid that you got a C in algebra because you were going to get murdered um, <laughs> so and at, also at home you were yeah, going to get murdered yeah. at home yeah. <laughs> no even my our teachers like they will put you in like extracurricular activities so you can learn more give you extra attention you had to sit in the front of the class if you had a C that's okay. our minus so it was like it was rough going to school because there was a lot of your only job as a child to go to school. Also, unfortunately, I grew up in Juarez, which is known to be a violent city. It's a border town. Yes. There was slayings. There was a bunch of people getting killed all the time. And, you know, that was very apparent when we started finding the women that were being kidnapped. And there was some, a lot of stuff happening that was very alarming to my mom. And I think that's why we moved when we moved to the United States, it was just like I came to a school where everybody was with their own group, like whites with whites, POC with POC, but the POC did not inter-talk to each other, like Asian diaspora with the Asian diaspora, like black diaspora, and like there were Latinos with Latinos, but Latinos didn't like me because I was too light, and I also Mm -hmm. had resident papers, and I also spoke English, and I liked English music, but Americans didn't like to talk to me because I was Mexican, I listened to Mexican music, and I was a Mexican immigrant. And they assumed that I was illegal. And then, like, pretty much I said with the misfits, like, that I would find, they were, like, the goth kids. I said in the goth table, essentially, or the burner table. Because I remember it was a girl named Crystal that invited me to sit with them during lunch because I was just having lunch by myself. And I went to an inner city school. So that was even more, like, I think it was just, like, when I immigrated, I didn't think of any of that happening. So I, I just thought that I was... Something was wrong with me. Ah. And that's where it started. I was like, I'm sorry, I'm Mexican. Apologizing uh, for my accent. Yeah, yeah. Because I had to do, you know, English as a second language and stuff like that, which I graduated quite quickly from. Um, I was reading in an eighth grade level when I should have been reading above. Um, so there was a lot of weird s- stuff. But, like, I found a little, you know, misplaced room of people that accepted me for who I was. But... You know the undertones of racism were still there, and when you think back to it, you like you're like like I was 14, 15. You don't think about that stuff. As time went on, I found that I just stayed where I was safe. In assimilation, I tried, and it, it was just like I was just unhappy. It was um, being in a library. That was where I ditched the first time. I ditched a period. <laughs> Went to the library. Um, you troublemaker, you. Yeah. <laughs> I saw a pictorial burlesque, and that's how I oh. associated. Then I found classes, and that's that, that was the start of the burlesque career, but in, in my youth, my uncle and aunts and a lot of my family were very political. There was very much political activity happening in 
in Juarez and they were part of it. Like, I remember my aunt telling me that she held somebody at, at gunpoint because they were like holding them up for the agricultural school or something that happened. And she's telling me she was part of this. It was a political thing to go ahead and get agricultural workers to get paid. And I'm sitting here going like, when did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, was that why we were babysitting your kid all the time? You know, like, I'm just like, click. So there was a lot of um, trips to go ahead and help indigenous people. There was a lot of trips to go ahead and like, you know, like organize for change for um, political events, especially with what was happening already in Juarez, which I guess had been happening there for a while that I just didn't know about. My family was already involved in that. And in school, I found Mosaic. I think if I remember it correctly, it's motivational outreach for the support and acceptance of an integrated community. Oh, <laughs> that was close enough. Wow. Yeah, it was like that was a uh, LGBT club or like also a, cl a social club where we could fight for change and rights and stuff. And I got started, you know, going to Pride and like going to to protest like Matthew Shepard, silence is not golden mm -hmm. day. I got arrested that day. It was my first arrest. My mom was not happy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, it was the first AIDS walk we did. So it was normal in my mind to speak up. Okay. But always being told not so loud. Not, wow. you know, you're a girl or you know, you're not allowed or you're you know, you're a kid, you're not supposed to do this and Specifically because I was studying religions and mythology because that's something that I, I truly love to like to read up on. It was the the idea that I had a book of Satan, which was required reading for my class. They went through my because after I was a post Columbine world, so it's very different to live as a person wearing all black, especially a Latina woman, especially a teenager, living in all like in that world because they would go through your lockers without consent of your parents or yours. And I knew sure. that that was not right. Sure. And I was like, yo, that's not cool. Why would you go? And I was like, well, we confiscated this book of Satan. And I was like, first off, I need that for my religions class. I do have a <laughs> midterm coming up. <laughs> or like a test coming up. I actually need to read that. And it's in my pre-approved books. Here you go. And like, they would call my parents all the time. And that's when I moved to an all-white school. Uh, it was called, it was like, the school was in the shape of a cross. And it did look like an insane asylum when that song went down. So it was kind of creepy. Weirdly enough, it kept sinking an inch every year. So <laughs> it says something. Huh? Yeah, but then I looked into school records because I was just like, I'm just a curious person. It turns out that our school was segregated. That was the way the bus stop was all the way in one end for a public bus. Huh. And the other buses were on the other one. So it's a predominantly white, white school. The Christian commanders was their mascot, and they had a Bible study during, during lunch. And I was like, wait a minute, you are allowed to have Bible study? Where, like, and I, when I said this, it came out of my mouth without even, because good Mexican Catholic, I know the Bible, uh, <laughs> from to back. So it's just like, wait a minute, you're, talk, you're, you're allowed to read about incest and murder and rape, but I'm not allowed to read about the Church of Satan? <laughs> for a test in my religion right, class, right. which is my like extracurricular activity because I was going to be, I was going to be uh, an archaeologist at one point, allegedly, so, or a fashion designer. Um, here we are. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was just, it was, it was like, you just knew that some things were just not right. And it was just normal to me to be like, yo, uh, no. And I'm really struck that as a young 
Mexican girl, you were put into the all-white school. I was told that it was the best thing for me by my parents, so I believe them. And it was like, you know, the person that my mom married, unfortunately, was very damaged. And he wanted to be white so bad that he, like, he assimilated to a point that was, like, I think mentally harming him of some sort. So he was also very abusive. Being part of that dynamic at home, like, made me want to try to, okay, fine, if I'm going to assimilate, I'm going to assimilate. But you are never going to be white enough to a certain demographic of people. So, and I knew that. But then it was just like, I just wanted to graduate from high school and just get it over with, and I did. Not long after I graduated, I actually met my daughter's father and moved to Ohio. Then had my daughter prior to starting burlesque and stuff. So that was like, oops, this happened. I got pregnant. Moving to Ohio. (laughs) To be continued. (laughs) So, and when I moved here, and I don't know. I, it was like a fire inside of me saying, like, you either do this now or it's never getting done. I just became, I started becoming me because of now having this small kid. And then I moved into a predominant white neighborhood with a predominant white family, Polish-Irish. So it was just like a lot of pierogies. I was really happy about that. Uh-huh. Um, but it was a lot of underlight racism jokes, which made me uncomfortable. Uh-huh. I never said... Like, I was like, eh, you don't want to say that word. Like, you know, sometimes yeah. I didn't want to say anything, and it makes you uncomfortable. You're just like, oh, racist uncle, let's go to the corner. There was a point where a friend of mine was like, you just need to stop saying sorry and just become you. And Well, let's talk about your journey as an activist. <laughs> you, you mentioned how it was there in your home and your family. Yeah. But can you talk about your experience of it? What was your motivation when it was your initiative to do that? I didn't like seeing people be taken advantage of. I don't mm-hmm. know if that makes sense. Like Because mm-hmm. like I had friends in school that were always concerned about certain things. And I was just like, well, why don't you just say something? It's like, that's not how it works. Why? Why can't you just go up to the mayor and say something? Like, it never clicked to me that you couldn't go talk to the president. Sure. It never clicked to me because everything was so accessible at a certain point. Like, I don't know, also our politicians in Mexico, in Mexico to me seemed accessible. So if this person is working for you, why couldn't you go up, literally up to them and be like, hey, this. So it never, and also especially with police, like I never, I was like, why wouldn't you tell them, hey. And what became obvious to me, because it was like MTV at that point remember like the MTV that like Kurt Loder was like talking about police violence and that was like super evident in the 80s and the 90s to me and I was just and I saw that and I I recognized it was predominantly black males getting in trouble or Latino males so you know gangs and stuff the cribs the bloods and everybody's like oh MS-13 I was like do you know that they don't exist cool um yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so was it th- it was seeing it was, how it was police seeing, were treating young men it was that just was how, for you a first kind how of? my friends were treated okay. that I didn't like to see because when you mistreat my family or my friends that's when you get another side of me and that's I think what I, I, I thought it would be normal to just stand up for a person that's, isn't that what you would do I didn't know you didn't know better No, I didn't know that that was not the structure 
Yeah. And I was just like, you know, there was somebody getting, it was a girl that had um, her natural hair. And I remember that they told her that cornrows were not allowed at school. And I never under, like, and I was like, it's just her hair. Why are you complaining about her hair? This right. is completely stupid. Like, I was sitting there with this, like, this, the, the advisors arguing with them because it was like, if that's the case, why is her hair okay? And I'm pointing, pointing at other people. And they dropped it, essentially, because I, you wouldn't, I wouldn't stop. Yeah. And I was like, why are they picking on you because you have cornrows? That makes no sense. This is your hairstyle. Like, I have purple hair. What's the point? You know? So it was just, it, it was just like, I just didn't know when to shut up. That was the problem. <laughs> so my mom often be like, you know, you can't be fighting battles for somebody else. You need to go ahead and, like, let their parents talk to them. And I was like, but they're complaining about her hair. It's not in the school dress code. Like, I learned the dress code back and forth, mm-hmm. so I knew. Mm-hmm. Um... I was was in the office for some reason, so <laughs> so it was. It's I don't know. It's just I didn't like my friends, the ones that I just made to be pushed like that. So I so that's high school. Talk about how your activism has progressed over time. My teacher from Mosaic actually was the one that really inspired to do stuff with the LGBT community, and that's when I started understanding my own queerness in my own mind. I was like, oh, this makes sense. Duh! So um, I understood my queerness, and then I started getting involved with... You will, I, talk to, I will talk to trees if they talk back. So I'm a very <laughs> social person. I was like, hey, hi, how are you? I'm, Nicely. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not shy. It's just a problem. But I started meeting people, and then they started inviting me to other things. So, like, most of my activism, like, after I moved to Ohio, I was introduced to a couple people that started running Pride in Cleveland. So I attended my first Pride. I was like, oh, this is cool. You know, how can I volunteer, or how can I involve? Because I always knew the volunteering was an option. So, and I always volunteered whenever I had the opportunity. Like, you know, and that's just really where I started in Ohio after I started with my burlesque group. The first two years was really difficult to start the burlesque troupe, so I also had other things going on. Like, we're like, hey, um, they're doing this benefit, blah, 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 blah. I was like, oh, I'm in. Do you need anything? Like, there's always, you always need hands. That's what it takes me from my aunt. You always need hands. I have hands. You have hands. We can do stuff. Let's do it. I'm sure there's a dirty joke in there somewhere. (laughs) But um, it's the, it was just that. And then, um, I made the move from, I, I broke off with my daughter, uh, daughter's father, and I, I, because that just was not a life I wanted, I moved away from that, because I realized, I was like, I'm way more, I want something more, I want something more for her, so we, I moved from Akron to Cuyahoga Falls, and I was like, uh, moved to Cleveland, after I moved to Cleveland, it was just kind of like, everything just came together. And I got involved with Cleveland Pride, with the center. I got involved with um, Dare to Care, other 501c3 nonprofits that I was working with. And it was just like they started fostering um, more awareness in my mind. And I got to work with some amazing people that I'm still friends to this day with. Some of them are old as dirt. <laughs> Hi, John. Uh, <laughs> listening to this. That's what we called him, Father Time, John Breton. Okay. I got to know, because I also have LGBT family, I was already aware of. Was that, that. awareness 
about others or was that awareness about your own identity? Awareness about others. I think I was always aware about others and I was always like, if the topic comes up, we'll talk about it. Okay. But I, I tried to keep private because then we started being like MySpace Facebook days. Yes. And it started getting a little weird because then internet fame was a thing. Internet outrage was a thing. And I was right. just like, okay, this is something we're doing now. Because before, like, you remember, you could go to your friend's house and knock on the door and be like, hey, what are you doing? Now it's just like, why didn't you call? Yeah. <laughs> You're like, get the cake out. <laughs> There's visitors. <laughs> get coffee going. <laughs> so it was, I think to me, it was just like the awareness that other people needed help and I was able to help. And also it was just like, Cleveland Kings and Girls was a drag troupe here back when Bounce used to exist back, back, back in the days and they taught me a lot they helped me a lot about volunteering about stuff and like I was when I started getting physically involved with Cleveland Pride I was kind of taken like an understudy and I was shown how to work a business so it was just like Here's how you book things. Here's about contracts. Here's about sponsorships. Here's about events, logistics. Here's about how do you put a stage together. This is what a stage hand does. This is what you know you have to do with these bike rackings. This is how you have to order tents. This is how they taught me essentially how to run my business. Well, wow. it was kind of like I'm volunteering and you're teaching me how to have a job. So this caring about others, it blended very nicely with your own self-awareness yeah. and seeing yourself in context and then how you might pursue your life. Yeah. I always knew that there was somebody that always needed something, so I was always just available. Mm -hmm. So, which is a double-edged sword sometimes. So, <laughs> yeah. you're like, I need something. Yes. I will be right on my way. And then you're running yourself ragged. That's something that I learned to say no to. If I don't have the spoons, I can't. Sure. Like, you know, because now it's like, so I have another kid and I'm married and it's just like this whole other, you know, back then I was like young and I had to be more of a, sure, I'll do it. Sure. You know, but I don't regret helping anybody. I've gotten in a lot of trouble um, <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> coughs and other stuff for, good for, good for you. getting called into weird situations. But I don't know, it was just like the people that I just met, somehow life gave me these people, they just kept putting me in the right direction they're just hurting me around they're like oh no that's super cool I was like oh, okay cool like we'll go help them too so like free term was one of the people that I one of the organizations that I helped narrow Ohio for women's rights then like we just we just get into this whole like like the <laughs> all the prides that I went to all the women organizations that I worked with all the like you know outreach that we tried to do for youth and it's just like it just literally just all came, and I just, you need hands. So now I'm a little more reserved about where I give my time, because sometimes not every person that works for a 513 nonprofit means well. Right. <laughs> That's something that I got taught to in my time with some of them. So it, it's like, you know, I'm a free agent at some spaces. So that's how I kind of... Since I was young, I was working with immigration stuff because I was always the translator. You know English, your daughter knows English, can she come with me to my immigration? So sure. at, a, at a point in time, I was just translating people's documents. Sure. And going to immigration was 
a pain. <laughs> they didn't have the system that they have now. You show up at like 5 o'clock in the morning with breakfast and you get in line. And if you get in that day, congratulations. And now the next day you show up at 4 so you can get seen. So it was, it was, a, it was just like always involved in immigration cases. And we were always very aware of ICE. We were always, and before ICE, we just called in La Migra. It was just like, we, we just knew. So we were always just had that awareness for each mm -hmm. other. And yeah. I think that's also that something translated because in the communities that I lived in, we were so concerned about each other. We always talked to each other. It's so weird to me that people don't talk to their neighbors. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? You can't go ask them for a cup of sugar? What kind of neighborhood is this? <laughs> so um, I was just always, we were always watching out for each other. Somebody died, we bring food. Right. Somebody's having a party, we bring food. Right. Somebody's like broken up with, we bring food. Somebody needs a drink, we give them a drink. <laughs> so, you know, like somebody needs a moment, we here's some food for your moment. So it's just like, <laughs> you know, it's, I think that as a, as a Mexican person, we're very caring. So that's also mixed in with my activism because it's like, hey, you don't have food, come over to my house, I'll cook for you sleep in my floor, couch, whatever, bathtub. But I think that that's one of the reasons that I think everything clicks so well together because we liked helping people. Our people are very welcoming people. So we just like to go forward. But activism-wise, it's just never, there was never an argument. If you're helping people that need help, you don't see, you don't say no, you say how. Uh, yeah. So. A sense of community. Mm -hmm. So you see yourself in other people. Yeah. You're able to draw lines. And you have. Yourself, you have to draw lines. Yeah. Well, we're <laughs> going to take a short break, and we'll be back with Bella after this. What they tell us, how they compel us. I know what it's like to wonder what is true. In the speeches, the ignorant preachers I know what it's like to be resented too In the brackish unknowns I'm left to question what I saw We'd love to hear from you. If you have feedback, suggestions, or ideas for future episodes, email us at voices at heartlandwoman.com And we're back with Bella Sin. Bella, I wanted to ask you about motherhood. Um, you have a teenage daughter and an almost brand new little boy who's yes. two. Uh, or not yes, yet almost two. two. Almost two in October and my daughter's going to be 15 in December. So your daughter is at an age where she, I'm assuming, knows what you do yes. for a living? Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and I'm sure you've had to have some interesting talks with her um, about that. She's been around it, so she understands. I think she understands about, she's been around classes, around my students, around you know me making costumes. She's a great costume maker at this point. Um, but it's... She has the understanding there's nothing horrible, so and there's nothing degrading. So um, I did for a mo moment tell her I was just like a drag queen. Okay. In a, 
she bought it for a, a little while and then she <laughs> discovered it on YouTube. But I told her, I was like, you're not allowed to watch them. You can watch them up to this point and then that's done. But she understands what it is. And she's very, as a Mexican-American, I'm trying to kind of doctrine what I was afraid of mm -hmm. in her so she's not afraid of it. So I think that's what is more important right now as a mother to to do for my children. So for both of them to make them, you know, understand that they're beautiful Mexican-American children and that they should not be ashamed of what their mother does for a living. So that that's her feelings. She doesn't have any bad feelings towards what I do. And, this, you know, she usually just tells me, bring me something shiny from wherever you're going. And I bring back something shiny from wherever I'm coming. <laughs> Which can be rather typical of a 14-year-old yeah. anyway. Yeah. <laughs> is, is there a message to her that you would like to impart as a Mexican-American girl becoming a Mexican-American woman in this culture, uh, given the issues that we're dealing with now, that, that, that you would like to impart on her? I think to, to any Mexican-immigrant women or girls, or Mexican-American women, Mexican-American, Mexican immigrant, um, just anybody that's even thinking about coming here or is already being here for generations of Mexican families is that to not ever forget where you came from, which is essentially the land of the sun. Like you, you came from a beautiful culture and that in no ways and means makes you less ever. And um, tell your uncle that he can get his own beer. So <laughs> that's, that's a regular. But I don't know. I, I just think that making people feel less because they're they might be less or they they're considered less should not ever be a thing. I guess to me. I mean, doesn't that message transcend being Mexican? It doesn't apply only to being Mexican. It's because of the way they were, the way that we grew up the things that we're told when we grow up, the things that we do when we grow up, the things that we continue to, in our community, deal with, and that's not feeling like you're enough. And it's different in each, in each background of where you're from because we're mm -hmm. always being either, as children, we're being prepared for womanhood to be married and wed because they want us to marry somebody not go to college but we probably should sure. go to college and do our own thing and if you don't you don't like I think it's just you know when your parents come over here like I saw my mother come over here and work non-stop to provide me a good future you kind of feel pressured to do the best you can to not make that chance go down or to waste it so there's a lot of pressure there and I think that I still feel that pressure because I have to do the best because I only have one chance this is really, honestly, at this point, it's, it's very true. Can you have one opportunity not to mess it up? And then to people like my daughter and, you know, Mexican-American girls that are here that are born here dreamers or just, you know, it's a lot of pressure to even tell people you're Mexican because it comes with a predisposed, oh, you might not be a fan of this person. Well, true, but also comes with a, oh, what do you, you know, at, at this point, it's either you 
assimilate or you're just going to have to do one of both, like assimilate or be a proud X, Y, and Z. And I don't think that that's, I think that's a lot of expectations to have a lot of young people fight, even though they're going for the fight, they're, they're going to go do the thing. It's expecting a lot from people that are still trying to find out who they are. So I think it's just, just knowing that they're enough it's really important. Yeah, that message comes through yeah. loud and clear. I also hear a message about self-realization, uh, about how every individual can have an impact on their society, and uh, maybe even simply life's better when you take off your clothes. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> Pajamas are the best, though. <laughs> I mean, there's a re you know your personal experience, which is compelling. It echoes. I think my immigrant story is, is, is different. Yeah, my immigrant story is different than everybody else's. Everybody's immigrant story is different, but I think it's like right. in the same in the same token, everybody at one point or time feels like they're not enough, and realizing that you are enough, it's right. just relatable to everybody. But it's like specifically to these women that are growing up right now. They grew up in what I grew up in, or they grew up in what was before us, has been very challenging. Mm -hmm. So because in the 50s, you couldn't speak Spanish here. Because you got, you know, beat or hung. So, yeah. it's, you know, you, you had to grow up with being, a, feeling like it's, the, the, the feeling since this, the start of a long time ago has been, you're not enough. So that's why I always want to be like, hey, you are enough. You can do whatever you set yourself to it. Yes, it's going to suck to break some of those walls and windows. But like, you know, my uncle always said, it was like, they don't open the wall. <laughs> Like, you don't, they don't open the window or the door. There's always the wall you can break through. And I was like, oh, yeah. You know, Kool-Aid man joke in there. But it was just like I've never taken no for an answer. I think that's also I found another way. Persisted. Sure. Persistent. <laughs> because, <laughs> because I just didn't take no for an answer. So I still take no. And, like, my husband very much says that no man will ever tell me what to do. <laughs> Or a woman. <laughs> Only my grandmother, whom passed away a couple of years ago, and, um, <laughs> and my mom. Those are the only people. I was, the chunkla of fear yeah. is real. <laughs> I don't want to get hit by some ghost chunkla from beyond either. <laughs> so, you know. But, yeah. Well, Bella, it has been a delight to talk with you today. We thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All the fun things. <laughs> not, you know, not only is your story compelling but you know me I come out of a different world it's really uh, quite something for me to sit here and listen to you talk it's, it's more real than simply reading about it to reading about it I think reading history books will go ahead and show you that there was a struggle and then talking to people now you'll realize there's the same struggle yeah. still here and hopefully with the little things that we do we continue to go ahead and make that struggle less Less struggle e, I guess. English words escape me at times. <laughs> so you, can, you can make it up. That's okay. That's struggle right. e. Mm. It's from Bella to English. <laughs> yeah, right. So. Well, certainly the most compelling learning experience is a direct personal experience. Mm -hmm. I think I think it is, and I think we can learn a lot from each other if we're willing to listen, which I don't think we're willing to listen anymore nowadays. I give everybody one chance, really technically three, I think it's important that we listen to those of us who are trying to tell you, hey, 
there's something wrong right now. This is not right. And I know that there's a lot of people that think it is right, but when somebody else is losing basic human rights over your opinion, you should consider something's wrong. And, you know, always and forever, I'm going to be one of those people who will be like, huh, no. <laughs> so if I could run for president, I probably would. At this point, might. <laughs> Just well, I'd like to, for I'd fun. Like, <laughs> I'd like to think that in every person, there's still something of the child who sees something unfair and just says, that's unfair. Children naturally do that. You did that. I like to think that deep down in there somewhere, there's some of that in people, provided that they're exposed to another human being actually experiencing. You have more hope than me. Because <laughs> me, me as a... I guess I, we're coming from two different backgrounds. That's what the difference is, because I've seen this struggle for so long and I've seen people yell at the struggle I've seen people see the struggle I've seen people help the struggle but I, indifference is worse than hate and when indifference yeah. is the one that is predominant all over the world it's when we're really truly going to see that the humanity is going to be gone so if you're indifferent and being indifferent is worse than being I think like any, anything else personally because you're just eh well part of our objective yeah. in this podcast is to undercut all those loud voices, and just present human beings so that people listening can see some of themselves in different Hopefully. people. Hopefully, they uh, they they see who we who we are as people, and that we can't keep going backwards. We need to go forwards, and forwards doesn't always equate a understanding decision of equality to each other's like. I guess more. I, I can't be more eloquent about it. it it's just like somebody suffering that doesn't deserve it shouldn't I guess what I'm trying to say is stop putting excuses forward to treat people horribly and knowingly that this is all happening in front of you and start be like okay messed up just kidding we're gonna go ahead and do it right this time those four years just really never existed so <laughs> yeah i think what marty and i share in yeah. common is we just can't tolerate sitting quietly and doing nothing that's why we're yeah, here it's right. it's the most important part is doing starting to do something do something do something so do it's just something. like you get up and do it yeah like if, if it's voting because i can't vote which is definitely like i i was like so angry with my friends that didn't vote because i was just like i can't vote you're voting for me <laughs> keep <laughs> like, beating on. on them make yeah. them vote oh no that's they've been beat up enough i i, I very famously one phrase that i have i only take apologies in cash um, <laughs> i also take credit cards and um, <laughs> in PayPal, but it's just like at this point, you don't get a check in second chance. We have to just. This is our lives. This is it. The fact that people messed world. up my life, my life that much, because like even like, yeah, my immigration status is not like I'm legal in the United States, but I'm still not a citizen. It's just like there's still so many emotions in that day that you can go ahead and and feel. And sometimes yeah. I'm just like. <laughs> Let's flip table <laughs> all the images and then go chill out and sew something because honestly, like going to go create my costumes helps me just like disconnect from that rhetoric that's in the world too. I can be like, I'm going to pour my anger in putting 7,000 million rhinestones on this. 
today. <laughs> then I regret that 15 hours later. <laughs> it's like, why did I pick the little ones? So <laughs> it's kind of, I guess it comes full circle. My activism gets their voice louder through burlesque because I have a stage to go ahead and tell people, hey. And then there's my burlesque that helps my activism have some self-care and chill time because even... And and both are productive outcomes of that anger. Very much. Which or cleaning is the house. What all <laughs> what we can ask for. <laughs> yep. Rather than uh, the destructive force that anger can become, if we allow it to. I think most of anything, just getting active, and just helping people in any immigrant community can go ahead and just be healing in so many more ways and both things have been very constructive towards that so hopefully and Bellison with the message <laughs> that you are enough <laughs> put more rhinestones on your costumes and put more rhinestones <laughs> <laughs> there's no such thing there's no such never many rhinestones we should Thank have you, rhinestones we should have we'll, yes. we'll, we'll, okay, <laughs> we'll dazzle ourselves here we leave you today with this thought from Francesca Leah Block. Just like any woman, we weave our stories out of our bodies, some of us through our children or our art. Some do it just by living. It's all the same. Thanks for listening. Be well, and we'll see you next time.